Hello and welcome to the P-Pro Podcast, I'm Niall Khan. Money laundering is a big business. Some estimates say that $1.5 trillion is laundered each year, and that works out to something like 5% of the entire world's GDP. P-Pro as an e-money institution has a responsibility to try and stop its products being used for money laundering. Today on the show, we're taking a look at what money laundering is, how it works in a digital economy, and how companies like P-Pro work to stop it. The man in charge of making sure that P-Pro's products are not being used for money laundering is sitting with me right now, John Fernandez. John, what exactly do you do at P-Pro? So I'm head of legal and regulatory affairs at PIPRO, and part of my role is also monitoring um, developments and regulation and how that impacts uh, compliance within the organization as well. So we're going to be speaking today a little bit about money laundering and anti-money laundering legislation in the EU. Uh, before we actually dive into that, can you explain how exactly money laundering works? So money laundering is all about basically taking funds that have been obtained illegally and converting them or, or, or changing the nature of those funds so that it appears as if they've actually been obtained in a legal fashion and they're legitimate and they're able to be used without basically uh, a suspicion arising um, regarding the use of those funds by, by the criminal. Basically, there's three stages of money laundering. There's the placement stage, the layering stage, and the integration stage. And I'll just quickly talk about those three uh, stages or phases of, of, of money laundering. Placement is all about uh, trying to basically input cash assets or cash that has been obtained illegally through, for example, illegal activities such as drug trafficking, um, fraud, these kinds of illegal activities, taking cash and trying to introduce it into the financial system. Um, because when you think about it, with criminals, if they, you know, they generate huge amounts of cash through their illegal activities, it's really quite difficult for them to then uh, use that cash to purchase items of a significant value. So you can't, for example, really go out with suitcases full of cash and purchase uh, a property, purchase a house, for example, without the real estate agent uh, you know, uh, without red flags being being raised and thinking what's going on here. So placement is about taking those that, that cash and introducing it into the uh, financial system. And the way that criminals do this is they try to basically use various vehicles to, 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 to conduct that type of activity. One such vehicle could be, for example, setting up a fake company. And then, you know, they, they start operating this, this business um, and then mixing in the illegal proceeds of crime with the legitimate proceeds that the, the business is actually generating. Uh, and, and that way they're able to then introduce these, this cash into the system. So, so that's, and usually it's, it's cash-intensive businesses that can be exploited in this manner by criminals. So other examples are, for example, casinos um, or even money exchange services, for example, currency exchange. That's very easy for criminals to, to use those kinds of businesses to introduce cash into the financial system, cash that's been illegally obtained. Once the cash is in the financial system, we then enter into the second phase of money laundering, which is layering. And basically what this is, is um, a series of transactions. So you'll either see uh, transactions from one account to another over several accounts or from one entity to another. It could also involve cross-border transactions. And the purpose of this is basically to try and 
mask or hide the audit trail leading back to the original crime. Because when you have a series of transactions in place in between, it's more difficult for law enforcement to trace back to the, to the origin. Finally, we come to the integration phase, which is basically the part where those funds are reunited with the criminal. Uh, they're reunited in a manner that um, they can then go ahead and spend them. So by, by that time, uh, the, the, the funds will look as if the criminal has basically earned them legitimately and they can go ahead and purchase their house or any other property that they want. So those are the three key stages of, of money laundering. So you've explained how, how money laundering actually works. How, how is PPRO working to fight money laundering? What does the team look like inside of PPRO? So PPRO, at PPRO, we operate, we have a multifaceted approach, basically, in the sense that we have a core team, a compliance team that handles money laundering, but it's supported also by our risk uh, and fraud uh, monitoring teams and our legal team as well. So we all work pretty closely together on money laundering topics um, and issues, but at the centre of it, as I said, it's our core compliance team um, that basically uh, monitors uh, transaction behaviour from via clients and also handles any escalations that, that come their way regarding, um, you know, if they detect certain certain types of activity, suspicious activity. Uh, so they're the core team that will basically then take the further necessary steps um, in order for PPRO to ensure that it's compliant with its money laundering obligations. Okay, and how, how do you as a lawyer actually fit into anti-money laundering? So my team, so we basically are there to uh, help interpret some of the, the legislation um, and how that should then be uh, transposed in some, into some of our policies and procedures at PPRO. Um, so we work, as I said at the start, we work quite closely with the compliance teams, but also our, our risk management teams. When they are then crafting policies um, or processes around, for example, um, how does customer onboarding take place? What are some of the processes relating to how customer due diligence is carried out? Um, or, for example, regarding our issuing side of the business, um, how should certain um, KYC, which is know your customer, how are certain KYC um, exemptions implemented at PPRO regarding our e-money products? Um, so we have a very close working relationship with the teams and we help them uh, in that sense in trying to basically understand and implement various pieces of money anti-money laundering uh, legislation. What actually flags suspicion? Uh, how, do, how do you figure out if someone is a money laundering or has a potential or if some transactions might be maybe slightly sketchy? That's a really good question. Um, and it's not easy, but um, we have a very um, uh, experienced uh, team on board. And um, we also have um, technical systems and controls that basically help us detect that type of activity. Basically, what you need to do is the first step is really conducting um, KYC, uh, which is customer due diligence, basically upfront um, gathering information on your customer so that you know their identity you know who's behind the customer, you know, who's the ultimate beneficial owner behind the customer, and you build up a picture of their business as well. You know, what, what is it that they're actually carrying out? Um, and that allows you to kind of set a baseline of activity 
that you would expect to see going forward in terms of how they use PPRO products and services? So there are some customers that you might automatically flag because they're in like a high risk or high potential for money laundering. Yeah, that's correct. So we, we certainly have obligations where we, at that stage, at the KYC or CDD stage, where we detect... Sorry, what's CDD? Oh, sorry. CDD is um, customer due diligence. Okay. Yeah. So at that stage, when we're carrying out that that, that first step of, of carrying out KYC, if we detect um, high risk, meaning that, for example, the customer may be based in a high-risk jurisdiction or the very nature of the customer regarding their, the, the structure, the corporate structure or beneficial ownership, if that also you know, lends to the fact that they may be high risk, then we are obliged and we undertake a further due diligence step. It's called enhanced due diligence. So that point in time, it goes from being a standard type of due diligence approach to an enhanced due diligence approach. So that's one of the, 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 the key steps we take. But as I was saying, in terms of the um, baseline, we, we set this baseline of an expectation in terms of the ongoing activity of the customer in terms of how they would use PPRO products and services. And then as we monitor their, their, their use of um, or their activity and their use of our products and services, if we see deviations from that, from the, expect, from the expected behavior, that's where we start to investigate activities such as a number of third-party incoming uh, transfers to the account that would flag a suspicion, a suspicion, for example. It could be large amounts uh, coming into the account as well, you know, large bank transfers coming in. So these are the types of, of things that we, we would look out certainly for. And are these flags written into law or are these something that private companies can decide to do themselves? Um, so private, we as private companies, we are actually obliged to um, conduct a risk assessment on our business. Um, and these flags, as you say, that's part of our risk assessment. So it's not uh, mandated per law. The, the risk assessment is. So when we carry out this risk assessment on a customer or on a product or service, we would then ourselves determine what, is the, what are the types of activities that would then flag up uh, a compliance um, intervention, basically. Can you explain briefly what kind of European legislation there has been for money laundering? So the main uh, European legislation that we deal with here in the financial services sector are the money laundering directives. Um, and uh, just recently we had the fourth money laundering directive um, come into force um, and that's been transposed into national law. Um, and one of the key changes that it's called 4MLD basically as abbreviated form, 4MLD brought into to effect was pushing this concept of risk assessments. So basically, it um, mandated firms within the regulated sector to carry out their own risk assessments to understand and assess the risks associated with their products and services, the AML risks, um, uh, and then put in place measures to mitigate those risks. So all the things that you were just talking about with uh, checking the customer, that all comes from this legislation? Correct. That's right. Yeah, that's the, that's the place where um, all regulated firms will look to in terms of how they implement their anti-money laundering controls. So we talked a little bit about 4 AML. So what are some of the changes that come with 5 AML? I understand there's like money limits for cash withdrawals that some EU states already have enacted. So Germany, for instance, I believe you can only take out 50 euros at a time and other countries more. So uh, what is actually changing with 5 
ALM. So, so you can you can say five MLD. So <coughs> MLD okay. MLD is the the money laundering directive okay. um, acronym. So, so yeah, I don't know if you remember, but when four MLD was basically passed into into law, um, France was hit by that massive terrorist attack um, at the Bataclan, and I think. A very short time after that, there were a series of other terrorist events in, in Europe, I think, uh, in Brussels. I think the airport was hit uh, and then London. So basically, the European Commission, they 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 wanted to enact further legislation um, to basically strengthen and, you know, the, the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing, basically. So both 4MLD and 5MLD and all of the money laundering directors prior to that, they also address terrorist financing concerns. So terrorist, terrorist financing is basically just exactly what it says. It's, it's the use of funds to basically support uh, an act of terrorism, basically. I'm just giving you this background because it's important for 5MLD, but um, uh, for financial institutions, we also have an obligation to detect and prevent um, terrorist financing, if we, if we if we see that, but it's a much much more difficult thing to actually control, because unlike money laundering, so unlike the the event of money laundering, a terrorist funding event can come from um, a very genuine source. So it could come from a donation from someone. Um, you know, it could come from salary payments, you know, and it, it only takes very small amounts to actually contribute towards a terrorist attack. It only takes a couple of hundred euros to hire a car or um, rent a hotel room or uh, purchase chemicals that can be used in some kind of attack. So it's a pretty difficult ask for financial institutions. Nevertheless, um, it does form part of the, an important part of the directives, so in part of 4MLD and 5MLD. The European Commission took the position that certain products on the market were higher risk or posed a higher threat to the European Union um, in terms of allowing such activity to take place, so allowing terrorist activity to take place. And unfortunately, prepaid products were one of these. Now, you know, PPRO is also a member of the Electronic Money Association, um, which is a, um, a membership made up of different or other um, uh, issuers and acquirers and um, payment institutions. And, you know, we disagree with this position because... The, the thing with electronic money is that it does allow for a trail. Um, there is an electronic trail there in terms of how the products uh, are actually used. So even though they may be um, uh, used for illegal purposes in some instances, there is this trail behind it. There is a, a you know, you can, there is a, an actual um, technical solution to finding out, you know, where funds actually originated from. Uh, and the reason why... We do actually. Um, uh, we're, we're, we oppose these these changes is because when you, um, what will happen is people will will start moving away from electronic money or criminals rather, and they'll revert back to cash. You know, cash is untraceable. You know, you you don't know where or or, or how that 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 those funds are actually being spent being spent. Um, so basically, the European Commission took this position, and they. They, they enacted further um, restrictions on, on how e-money products are issued. 
So many years ago in the European Union, there was a support for basically moving away from a cash-based society. I mean, you and I know this coming from um, the US and New Zealand. You know, basically in those countries, when you want to go and buy something, it's pretty much you use your, your payment card to do it, right? You move to somewhere like Germany and it's all cash. You know, you have to carry on, carry on, carry around cash. Um, otherwise, you may not be able to pay for your sandwich at Tengelman or, you know, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Which is unheard of in the UK or the US or, um, or New Zealand or Australia. Um, so the European Union wanted to basically try and foster innovation and technology, and they encouraged firms to develop these types of, of products. And they did, did this through passing um, a, a further directive to allow certain actors to basically enter into the market and, and through their technology solutions, uh, provide these financial services, provide these e-money services. Um, so e-money institutions like Pipro, we basically, from a regulatory perspective, we sit just underneath a bank, let's say, in terms of the licensing and the obligations we have. Now, in order to try and foster competition, what was, what was um, previously passed was that e-money products, when they were issued, you didn't need to actually obtain KYC up front. Issue worker just give you a card and then after the fact, check into you. After a certain amount of time or a certain amount of usage, um, then the e-money issuer would be obliged to then verify identity, right? So, so that was taking place for a number of years and it allowed the growth of the e-money business because you had users who would take up the product and use it and they wouldn't have this hindrance or this friction caused by, you know, stopping use of the account to say, give me a copy of your passport, you know. Um, now, the, the, the amounts that were previously set were relatively high. They were around 2,500 euros worth of um, loading for reloadable products um, uh, and 1,000 euros withdrawal. So meaning you, for example, previously with the Viobuy product, you could, yeah, you could send a transfer to your Viobuy account up to two and a half thousand euros, and you could take out up to a thousand. If those limits were exceeded, uh, your account would be well, your usage would be temporarily suspended until you provided a copy of your driver's license or your passport. Four MLD and then five MLD have drastically reduced those limits. So, in particular, the the concept behind five MLD was to get rid of. Uh, anonymity. So e-money products, there are certain products on the market which are known as anonymous prepaid products. Um, these are typically voucher type products. I don't know if you ever... Like a pay safe card. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, th those limits have now dropped right down. So for anonymous products, um, it used to be 150 euros. That's still in place now, but if you use your product online and your spend goes over 50 euros, uh, that's no longer allowed. You would then need to, to verify the user's identity. So voucher products will effectively, th their limits will drop from, a, from 150 or 100 in Germany uh, down to 50. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the, the big, big changes. Um, in addition to this, under 5MLD, acquirers here in the e European Union, they will no longer be allowed to process transactions from anonymous cards issued outside of the EU. So, for example, you know, if you went back to the States and you purchased some 
uh, anonymous product, the anonymous prepaid product there, it would no longer be allowed to be accepted at, at terminals here in the in the EU. So that's another another big change. And and the other, so as I said, five MLD is all about um, increasing transparency. There are also changes to um, how. Remember at the top of the session, I was talking about the filing of these suspicious activity reports to your um, to your financial intelligence unit. 5MLD also increases the amount of cooperation between FIUs in various jurisdictions. FIUs, FIUs are financial intelligence unit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like the so in, in, in Germany we have something called the BKA, um, which is Bundeskriminalamt. Uh, that's kind of like the B, uh, FBI in the in mm. the US, right? So uh, now they will talk more to each other regarding some of these filings from financial institutions in their jurisdictions. How successful actually was anti-money laundering for? Well, I think we're still starting to 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 you know kind of assess the the outcome of 4MLD because it's still relatively new. And on the back of 4MLD, there was a you know this quick uh, amendment amending legislation which has become 5MLD. So we're still kind of still assessing that. Um, I think the real outcome will probably be seen next year in terms of success. You know, in terms of gauging that amount of success, we'd we'd have to wait for I would say for you know competent authorities um, in various jurisdictions to come up with with that level of assessment. I think actually what's going to happen is you're going to see a huge industry impact. Um, so uh, especially on the e-money uh, e-money sector, but also the other the other big big change from fire in terms of five MLD is the fact that. Once that comes into force next year, you will have virtual currency exchanges and also custodian um, wallet providers, basically, who will be obliged to follow money laundering regulations. So I don't know if you're familiar with um, virtual currencies such as no. Bitcoin. <clears throat> oh, yes, of course. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am familiar with Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah so, so today you can, uh, you can go purchase Bitcoin or some of these other virtual currencies uh, here in the EU without having to undergo a mandatory KYC. So a lot of the bigger players anyway implement measures. So um, uh, Coinbase is one example where they already have uh, controls in place to identify people who are looking to purchase Bitcoin or other VCs from, from, from them. But that's not in, across, it's not in place across the board. 5MLD now changes that. And it also includes not only the the, the, the exchanges themselves, but the, the the custodian wallet holders as well. So the the guys holding the keys, basically. So pure, providing a pure technical service, they will also have to implement measures to ensure that when people are storing that data with them, there will be steps in place to basically identify um, who these uh, key holders are, basically. I mean, how how successful can these policies actually be? Because uh, just last week, there was an Estonian bank, uh, what was it, Donsky Bank, Estonia, had $40 billion worth of Russian money laundered mm. through it yeah. over the course of one or two years. So if there's banks that are already failing in anti-money laundering, what is the likelihood that these smaller independent operations can do a better job? That's a really good question. I think, you know, what we've seen throughout history is that in terms of the larger um, uh, money laundering cases... You're right. It does often involve banks and very, very large banks. I mean, a number of years ago, HSBC was involved as well. Um, but I think that's slightly different, to be honest, because I think that those cases were actually where those 
financial institutions were, let's say, willfully negligent in how they actually implemented their their, their, their processes, at turning a blind eye to certain practices, for example. And I don't think the smaller entities would be able to or afford to, to carry out that type of activity. It would be very, very, you know, they would very, very quickly, it would very quickly come to light. Do you think it would? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because, you know, as a smaller institution, you're, you're, you're under much more scrutiny from, I think, players within or actors within the, the, the payments chain. So as a smaller player, you have certain dependencies. You have dependencies on banking partners, for example. You are subject to reporting requirements to, um, to your regulatory authority. You will have investors on board who, who, who will want to have a close look. You'll have clients who want to look at your systems and controls. So that's, those are the reasons. I think when you're a huge banking conglomerate, those kinds of dependencies tend to fall away and you become almost, you've heard the saying, so too, you know, too big to fail, but I think also too big to catch, let's say. And, and, and people can basically, as I said, turn a blind eye to certain practices. Um, eventually they, they do get caught, but it's often after many, many years of that activity haven't been undertaken and many millions of uh, euros or dollars being laundered through those facilities. Okay. I've read that um, a lot of the impetus behind for MLG was the terrorist attacks. Mm. And so a lot of this is focused on terrorist activity, mm. making sure that terrorists can't transfer money around. Um, how much focus is actually on oligarchs? There, there is focus. So as I said, one of the key uh, aspects to 5MLD was increasing transparency. And I mentioned as well, you know, one of the vehicles that criminals often use is setting up either fake businesses or also what I know as shell companies. Uh, so you mentioned the Cayman Islands. That's a jurisdiction where it's very easy to to open to, to set up a company, open up bank accounts, uh, and use that to launder launder um, proceeds of crime. Um, one of the other changes that Five MLD brings about is also introducing what's known as a um, beneficial owner uh, register. These are central registries which contain details of the ownership of EU companies. Um, so it is EU-based companies. So that immediately then allows you know much more transparency as to okay who is behind certain um, legal setups basically. And previously in, under four MLD that was already in place, but in order to access the information, uh, individuals would need to demonstrate um, what's called a legitimate interest. They would really need to show that okay there, there is a um, uh, there are grounds to actually access this information. Under 5MLD, that's now fallen away, and you no longer need to, to demonstrate that. So the names are just there in the public. Yeah, exactly. And that's already in place in, in the UK, actually. So if you wanted to look up a company, you could actually find the details of who the UBOs are or who the ultimate beneficial owners are. How much do you think like the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers have either peaked interest or focused legislation in the EU? They, they certainly, certainly did... Um, focus uh, interests and, and, and the attention of the European Commission was actually um, turned towards, as I said, increasing transparency. And Pan the Panama Papers scandal was also a, one of the main uh, reasons for introducing certain provisions into 5MLD surrounding UBOs and, and the like. So uh, that was certainly a, um, um, a, a key factor um, in terms of 5MLD. Has there been any specific legislation that has will change the way that or will prevent the Paradise Papers or something like this from happening in the future? Well, I think, I'm not sure if you followed the, the discussions when this was going on, but there were a lot of very influential parties 
within the EU who are also against some of the changes being um, that have been introduced um, into 5MLD, especially surrounding beneficial ownership. So it wasn't just an easy pass, let's say, for, for the European Commission. Um, uh, but, but yeah, you know, the, in terms of 5MLD and, and the Panama Papers, I think the changes that have been introduced in terms of how information on certain setups, so not only just company for, uh, setups, but also, for example, trusts, um, uh, basically being able to obtain more details on, on that is, is going to make that type of activity more difficult. Having said that, I think, you know, the people who were involved uh, in the Panama Papers scandal, they're very powerful, very influential people. Um, uh, they'll have teams of lawyers who will be able to basically find some way forward, I think. Um, so, I, you know, if your question is, do I think that um, uh, situations such as the, you know, Panama Papers scandal will be avoided in future? No, I don't. <laughs> um, uh, but I think it will make it more difficult, let's say, for uh, people wanting to try and basically connect the EU with that type of activity or U EU um, entities with that type of activity. It will be more difficult, but I think they will find a way. John, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Niall. It was really, really good to speak to you about, about this topic. Thanks very much for listening. And a reminder that you can follow PPRO on Twitter and Instagram at PPRO underscore group. Until next time.